welcome back to episode 63 of the Sports Medicine Project, the intro to the intro to our part one with Dr. Peter Maliaris, the tendon guru. Now, Kelly and I went on somewhat of a good conversation for the first 45 minutes, so skip straight to minute 45 if you want to get straight into Dr. Peter Maliaris's episode. But what we talked about were a couple of listener questions, discussion on recent advantages in tendinopathy, the current understanding of the continuum, efficiency in clinical life, return to racing post-shin splints, running injuries, rehab fatigue, and when to discharge people, plus a couple of case studies. But enjoy, guys. Sports Medicine Project number 63 we are up to today with Dr. Peter Maliaris, the tendon guru, some may say. I say that, definitely. I think everyone says that. I don't think there's many people that don't say that. No, he's he's incredible. He is such a knowledgeable guy and answered the questions. It felt like it was really simple, but the topics he were talking, sorry, the topics he was talking about. The topics he was talking about, that doesn't the make sense. Topics he spoke about. Yeah. That just sounded really illiterate. But yeah, the, the topics <laughs> that he spoke about are incredibly complex topics, mm-hmm. but he explained them so simple, as in, I'm excited for patients that I see to listen to this for them to get an understanding of what we talk about in the clinic. Mm-hmm. And you can tell he is a presenter because he just spoke very well, exactly what you said, very kept kept it kept explained complex things in a very digestible way yeah it was great and you know as we when we had dr rich willie talking about bone stress injuries i mean i see tendinopathies more than i see bsi injuries tendinopathies are a mainstay of anyone's clinical diary i mean Mm. if you're a clinician it's guaranteed you may not see a bone stress injury every day but I'd, I'd bet some money you'd be pretty close to seeing your tendinopathy every day yeah particularly With, working in a sporting based private practice yeah even really or athletic recreational yeah, any yeah i don't even think that would be the case i think it's it happens in all general the population pop. yeah yeah i see i would see more tendinopathies in the general population and not just active people but to post tendinopathies achilles tendinopathies perineals those kind of mm. things, almost even a bit of plantar fasciopathy, that's almost treated some somewhat like a tendinopathy. Yeah, that's but true. Uh, yeah, it does happen to to everyone. I know there's risk factors for you know the more that you do because of the more mechanical load that you apply to the tendon, but it really does happen. But then in elderly popu- or more elderly or more sedentary populations, mm. because their capacity to tolerate load decreases, if mm. they mm-hmm. go and do a lot of gardening one day or go for a walk <clears> with their family one day and they haven't done that in mm. years, then that's yeah. a increase in load that could set off a yeah. reaction of the tendon. Yeah, and as you get older, you get changes in the cross linkages between your collagen, which can also affect the ability of the tendon and muscle to produce load which can inherently reduce its capacity. And sarco, is it sarcopenia, which is a loss of muscle? I wonder how that, that would affect. I know it's in the, the geriatrics topic that I, that I teach. There are so many age-related changes that happen and tendons are the, one that, tendons are the ones that tend to get affected amongst everything else in the body. 
Yeah. yeah. On on that topic, actually, so we'll talk about what we, we're going to talk about today. So obviously part one with Dr. Peter Meliaris, but what topics are we running through today, Kelly, sub 140 half marathoner? <laughs> We've got some listener questions that we'll go through, yep. which include some of the recent advances of tendinopathy, mm-hmm. our current understanding about the continuum model and its relationship to load. We there was another listener question as well. Oh, oh I put him uh, into two. I put him into okay. Yeah. There's also uh, a, a listener question on the role of isometrics with tendinopathy. We've got some case studies about returning to racing post MTSS running injuries. How do we translate research to clinical practice? Talking about rehab fatigue and when do we have a rest from rehab? I'm keen to talk to you about that one. Those yeah. two topics. Yeah, and efficiency in clinical life because we know the majority of people that listen to our podcast are clinicians, healthcare professionals, and we really want to try and explain the things that we've seen. We try to implement ourselves in our clinical life, not just related to treating patients, but things like financial health as an allied health practitioner, business-related content, and also how we manage as practitioners just in the day-to-day life, like time management, rebooking, that kind of thing. I'd say you and I are very different in that space too. Which is good. Which yeah, is good. That's and what I mean. Like it'll be a good, uh, differing perspectives, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and if we do have any new listeners, Kelly and I are, are partners. We love to agree to disagree. Is, mm. that, is that right? And we definitely have varying perspectives on lots of different things. We probably agree a lot on the knowledge, like do mm. bone stress injuries need resistance training? But there's these little nuances that we both have, which is another reason why we created the podcast because... Mm. There isn't anyone, I don't think you'll ever find a practitioner that solely treats the way that you do. Definitely believe in the principles, but you're never going to find someone that's completely similar, which is good, which is really, really good. I had feedback from a runner that I was running with today who listens to the podcast. He said that our debate and and bickering adds a a layer of depth to the podcast Mm. that you don't get in many other podcasts. Yeah, and we're allowed to do it. And also, we know that polarizing content, not to say that you and I are bagging on each other all the time, but polarizing content psychologically is more engaging for people. Like we know that with the spread of social media content, we know the spread with fake news when it comes Mm -hmm. to politics. For an example, someone posted a, a picture of something that was happening in a Facebook group that I'm a part of and they were saying there was a debate going on. As soon as I saw it, closed it, went straight to the group to read it, whereas if they had just posted something otherwise, I probably wouldn't have done it. We're kind of drawn to that. The as drama. Human. Yeah, we're drawn to it. That's why we love Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but let's let's get started. I'm going to start off with, with my week and something that I'm trying to implement. had a really busy week and it's been busy the last, last two weeks and... I really put the hammer down this week and tried to focus on not getting distracted at all and just always, any time that I had, trying to get my notes and reports done. So if a patient left a couple of minutes early or I had someone move to a bit later or someone reschedule, wouldn't pull out my phone, wouldn't talk to anyone, I'd just go straight to my notes and try and get them done. And it was so much better. Like you even think, and I was playing this little game and I had... I remember I had three notes to do from the morning. It was 11.57 and I had another patient at 12. And I was like, can I get my notes done? And I should be able to, if you really just focus for a minute and you can get mm, patients done. They don't take long. They don't. You've just got to just mentally, gotta yeah, you've just, just got to do commit. it. Just start doing it. And it just flows. Mm. And obviously I'm not taking, for review appointments, I don't take as detailed notes as 
if I was doing an initial, but you really can get it done. So, and it's easy to get distracted. I want to pull out my phone. I think of something I want to write and talk about the podcast. I want to go and talk to one of someone. Mm. Yeah, but try that. Did you try, I've got a question. Did Mm. you try conducting an initial consult without taking notes and just listening? No, I didn't, but I made sure to, and I always do that anyway, I'd made sure to really make as much eye contact as possible. However, this is when I realized, and maybe from that, this is what I realized I can do now. I can take notes without looking. I've got enough because I've got the same keyboard at home because I'm writing research and content for the podcast. I do a freaking lot of typing. I can take notes without looking. So I tried that and it was pretty accurate. A couple of spelling mistakes, which was fine, but I can look at them and just like take content. I think that's still the same thing though, where your mind is not focused on them. But uh, I'm just, I'm literally, I'm not, I wouldn't say it's taking up any of my cognitive bandwidth by hearing what they say and me just typing it. Mm. Same as like walking. Can you speak and walk? Yeah. Yeah, but I could be wrong. Maybe it's distracting for the person sitting right in front of me though. I don't know. But no, I don't want to talk about this though. I was just curious. Right, but I didn't do it to the extent that you said. But that was something I want people to, to try and do is just focus on just getting your notes and reports done when you've got those time gaps, even if you go 10 mm. minutes into lunch. Good mm. one. I uh, had a, a wound come in the other week, no, at the start of the week on Monday, and we don't see a lot of wounds in the clinic. We really don't see... How intense would you say this wound was on a scale of 0 to 10? Yeah, pretty intense. I uh, recommended the person to go... Like diabetic wound? Not, not diabetic, but it was, there was definitely infection and, and things present, which I'm not going to talk about diabetic foot ulcers or just foot ulcers in general. But as soon as I saw that, like I'm comfortable in managing them, and that's one of the, the topics that I teach at the university, debridement, dressing, offloading, education, those kinds of things are all important. But I am not, I don't believe that I am the best practitioner to manage this presentation. And I explained that, I said, this is the kind of, this is what we see. I'm very happy to manage this. And it was, I knew that it was a family member who mentioned for this older person to come and see me. Like, I'm very happy to manage this, but I have a colleague who's a lot better at managing this, probably more well-equipped in regards to dressings and offloading. So I think it's probably best that you see them, not to shush them out the door. And not that I don't want to see that. There's just someone better at it, at managing it than me. Mm. What do you think of that? Yeah. Do you think did they? What did they do? They're staying with me. Like, oh, I feel like that always happens. Yeah. I, I, every time I have that conversation with people where <clears> I'm like, you know, there's probably someone better that to see this mm. if you want to go and try with them. Like, for example, oh, I can't even think what an example would be. But, yeah, I find more often than not, or mm. they're like, oh, it's all right, I'll stay with you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, if you want to. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I... I'm not saying that you should do that as a practitioner. This is just my personal preference. And when it comes to these things, they are like they're in a high risk area on the end of the toes. So, yeah, it was just something that I thought that would be worth mentioning because I know that that would happen in clinical practice. And I know the saying goes: if you're a young practitioner, you want to get exposed to as many things as possible so you can become quite fluid and quite generalized, so you're prepared for anything that comes in. But in this case, I, I was confident just, and I knew what I guess I wanted to 
to mm. say and they were appreciative of that have you ever had had that happen what would be a physio yeah example? I, I have and i can't think of what it was i i'm, I'm thinking it might have been something, something women, women's health, health yeah. related yeah. yeah i think uh i think what it, it was someone coming in to see me because i've expressed an interest in working with females and i think from that they thought that i was a women's health expert mm. and i i had to sort of explain to them look no i can i can do a, a general sort of pelvic floor assessment and give you advice and recommendations on things that you might be wanting to work on but if you're looking for a more in-depth women's health assessment these are the people that i'd recommend you go and see Mm. that there that's the that's their field they're Mm. the experts in that field and they they were like nah it's all right we'll just try this first and if i feel like i still need it then yeah i'll do that yeah you think like what's best for the patient it's going to be better that the patient sees someone that sees it Mm. more often i mean can i manage someone's glute tendinopathy i probably could but Mm. i know there's a lot better people well equipped out there than me yeah and Mm. if it was something very significant i would have definitely suggested that i think for this person it was it was just like a bit of incontinence when they were running or something like that and I just said, well, we can try a few of these things first and see how yeah. you go. And if we, if you need to, then. Yeah. Yeah. One, one other, well, two, two interesting patients this week. And it's always, as we always say on this podcast, it's always very re- rewarding to see people, especially when they do something that you love and you enjoy. I'm talking about running, but two patients who are just so such lovely people almost back back to 100 percent. and if you listen to this podcast consistently you would have heard us talk about sorry would have heard myself talk about a recent insertional achilles runner that was a little bit not odd but didn't fit into the tendinopathy box that we would expect so insertional achilles we would expect more elevation sorry more faster mm. running to be irritable and it wasn't so i saw I was saying the other thing. Sorry, we would expect more elevation to be more irritable and it wasn't. But anyway, saw this person this week. Comes in. How have things been? Great. Feeling good. Really, not really much pain at all. A little bit of uh, morning stiffness, but I'm feeling really confident. Went for a three-hour long run. Like, everything was going really well. Like, great. That's awesome. Now, when I was a younger practitioner... I would have been straight along the lines of, great, awesome, don't need to see me again, fine, keep up with the rehab, if there's any issues, re-engage. But now, seeing it enough and having probably, not failed care, but people come back and re-engage, I just said, that's really good that it's like this. However, we know with musculoskeletal injuries, they don't follow a nice linear equation back to 100%. And although things are going really well, there is always the chance that it could flare back up. So A revolving door, as Peter Maliaris yeah, says. Yeah, as would say. And that's really good to... Sorry, you put me off track sorry. there. <laughs> sorry. It's good that things are going really well. However, if things were to flare back up, still using the same management strategies that we talked about, and I still want you to continue with the rehab, yes, the rehab can start to take a little bit more of a backseat and you can start to increase building up your running. And I've said this to, to this person's coach and... Yeah, I rebooked this person for for three months and I'll check back in and then I'll give some more rehab and and make sure things have been okay. But it was an interesting insight and reflection to, although things can be going really well, don't jump the gun too much and say, great, you're out of the woods, that's awesome because Mm. we know these things can flare back up again. That's the nature of MSK injuries and you've got to explain that reality with your patients. I think it's good to pre-frame that also because... 
in the chance that it does flare back up again, they're prepared for it a little mm. bit more. Mm. And you've had that conversation with them. And yep. I think it minimizes their concern around a flare up as well. So oh, yeah. if it happens, they're like, oh, well, that we, we discussed the chances that that could happen. It's not the end of the world. It'll be okay. It's just having a little moment and yeah. it'll get yeah. back on track again. Yeah. And then, so another runner as well that I saw around Christmas and I posted this on the Instagram story, this person was only able to tolerate three by six minutes of running. So this person this week and they're now up to three times 60 minutes of running and three times 60 minutes. minutes. Yeah. So for three hours. Oh, not like over the week. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. a lot. So, and when I originally saw this person two weeks prior to the first appointment, they couldn't walk. I had to completely stop running. And it just goes to show those flare-ups can be, can really have such an effect on someone, but they can recover quite quickly. And one of the things that I reflected on as well was when we're going through their return to running, <clears throat> I explained that the body does not follow a linear equation where it just goes up and up and up and up and up to 100%. You can have down times, flare-ups and bad days, or you can have really good days. Because, yes, there is the chance that it could flare-up, but there's also the chance that it might improve quicker than what we're saying. So if it feels good, it's okay to push it, knowing that it might get sore, but you're not going to do any damage. And they just continued to push it, and it got better like a month earlier mm. than what we'd expected. It's scary for patients, I think, to take that leap mm. of mm. having enough trust in you and themselves to just go for it a little bit yep. I think that that takes a lot of confidence to really get to that point so that's that's cool though I, I agree yeah it was awesome so what about your your week you've got some topics to discuss yeah I wanted to ask your thoughts on when patients have been going through rehab for a long time and they're often thinking about their injury and their injury becomes their their sole focus almost throughout the day mm. at what point do you think it's a a good option for them to take a step back from rehab or do you think that that's going to derail their progress mm. i've got a few more questions is that from because it's painful or because it's limiting their pardon me limiting their activity or the injury is like not getting better or it's just taking a long time? Just taking a long time. Maybe maybe their expectations weren't set right at the start mm -hmm. and maybe it's going on for longer than they expected. Mm. There's a bit of rehab fatigue because they're yeah. waking up in the morning having to do their exercises to, let's, let's just say, uh, so a patient that I'm thinking of in particular is, I've got two patients actually that I'm thinking of, but we'll go with the one who had a knee replacement and she has to wake up every morning and, and do her exercises mm. just to minimize some of that stiffness and soreness yeah. that she gets in the morning. Yeah. And then throughout the day, she is thinking about her knee because it just doesn't feel normal. Mm. It doesn't feel like she wanted it to at this point in time. Yeah. Do you think it's better to continue to push rehab or do you think it's better to almost tell them to take a break, break in some senses yeah that's a great question and i don't think i'm gonna have the answer but i definitely have some thoughts yeah on that is is it purely just the feeling of the and you could obviously extrapolate this out to any any injury 
but is, is it more the feeling or is it trying to get back to something it just because it feels different so this patient in particular her knee was feeling pretty good before the knee replacement mm. and i was almost encouraging her to try and delay the knee replacement without saying that but maybe suggesting that that's an option because mm. of how well it was feeling and then after the knee replacement it felt really bad and sore and stiff and and now she doesn't have the range of motion that she anticipated that she would mm. she hasn't gone back to some of the activities that she thought she'd be able to by mm. now mm. the other element is she's quite a perfectionist mm -hmm. so she's always asking me to measure her knee flexion and she's mm. so determined to get it to 130 degrees of flexion despite my best efforts to say where it is at the moment at 123 degrees of knee flexion is okay you'll yeah. be able to do most things mm. yeah it's hard and that's a really common scenario that happens for, for a lot of people and it's through no no fault of of patients at all i mean they just take in the information from different practitioners and they ultimately make the decision. But I don't know, and I don't want to say that people get knee replacements and surgeries and things unnecessarily, but it seems to, to definitely happen. And yeah, we know that surgery is, is varied. So I do want to say it's obviously not, not from any patient fault, but yeah, I don't really, mm. really know how to answer it. I mean, is it... All you can do is have the conversation and, and try and create and instill that idea in that person. But mm. do you feel like you're, you're getting anywhere? For what I've done for her, because I actually think that she's got a reasonable amount of function. So for her, what I've done is, is said mm. to continue to do the things that make it feel good each day if you feel like you need to. Yeah. Other than that, I only want you to complete your strengthening exercises two times a week. The rest of the week, I just want you to do the things that you like to do. So yoga, walking, yeah. going to the beach, going for a swim. Think of it as your normal activity, not as rehab. I don't, mm. I don't want the idea of rehab to be in your head anymore, yeah. really. That was the advice that I kind of ended up giving her when I saw her last week. And so like shifting yeah. the focus shifting away the from focus her. away from rehab it's not painful it's just feels different and stiff just different and stiff yeah. and not what she was hoping for yeah. then i've got another patient which i would say is a similar scenario she had a really big surgery last year and prior to that was going through a year or so of rehab before the surgery then had the surgery and it's very painful and very functionally limited still. She can't do a single leg calf raise and it hurts a lot. Mm. She has significant, I would say, rehab fatigue as well mm. in a different sense though. So I think she has a lot of functional limitations. And this is one where I think she needs to continue to do rehab maybe. But I'm aware of the rehab fatigue that is affecting her as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't have an answer for that. But if the rehab is important, do they need the rehab? I don't know. Hmm. I guess so. I mean, I think if you can't do a single leg calf raise, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, shifting the focus, trying to change the narrative. I mean, it's definitely about someone's belief. 
that you're you're trying to change or depending on which person we're talking about the first person trying to change Mm, I think it's her expectation yeah belief expectation psycho what would you call it psychograph no not psychograph but psychology yeah I wonder how how important is it I'm sorry how much can you predict if, if things sorry can we definitely guarantee that things will be different in the future probably not but we also can't guarantee that it won't change mm. so i mean do you instill the hope that it could change when in fact it, it might not or it might yeah i i don't know i guess shifting the focus is the only thing that you can do in working on changing that belief what about this is just something i, I think is it worth seeing another practitioner someone else to instill what you've already said or to what would you call it re- reinforce what you've already said mm. Maybe. So the, the second case is seeing Justin as well. Yeah, yeah. And I had a chat with him about that. And he's, again, going to try and reinforce similar messages. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I think sometimes that that is worthwhile, definitely just getting a fresh set of eyes on it to to give their, their peace and, and maybe they'll understand it better coming from someone else. What's the surgeon said? Has the surgeon said anything? Is it worth consulting... Both being back with them. Yeah, I've had a few conversations with the surgeon. Yeah, and nothing much has, has changed. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a great question, though. Mm. Mm. What about what else have you got to, to discuss? I just had a big high for the week. One of my patients that I might have spoken about on the podcast before has had a raging MTSS, bilateral MTSS, for about three years and has been unable to run or has tried return to running and, and not really gotten anywhere mm. and over the last few months of some strength training and gradual return to running we got him back to his first race last weekend which was super exciting felt really good and it was just it was just one of those really good outcomes that I was pumped for yeah that's great another reason why we I guess one of the other drivers for why we do while we are healthcare. Mm. practitioners but it's incredible to think how much involvement you played in that you know you would almost say you're the main driver of someone getting back to something that they love to do which is beautiful it is thank you it's good listen to questions should we get into those yeah let's get into them yeah so the the question that i had and this kind of sparked a bit of a cascade on our instagram story has the current understanding of load-dependent tendinopathies changed since the continuum. So this person's referring to the continuum proposed by Jill Cook in 2011, and there's been another study coming out by Jill Cook and Emily Rio in 2019, which is just a, a paper about revisiting the continuum. So I've taken a couple of things out of there, but what they were talking about is... I don't think you've read the question yet. Did you read the question? Yeah. Has the understanding of load-dependent tendinopathies changed since the continual model? Yeah. Cool. Sorry. I was no, you're listening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so in that they were saying that in degenerative tendinopathy, interventions influencing tendon structure are less critical as the pathology appears to have limited reversibility. So in the original continuum paper, they suggested that treatment should focus on stimulating the cell to produce collagen in the degenerative region and to help restructure the matrix. But it's now been demonstrated that interventions designed to change structure don't necessarily result in improvement, but more importantly, they may not need to. So in this sense, 
to generative structure doesn't have to change, although it may in it, and it probably does, to improve pain and function. Now, that's pretty well known, but I thought it's it's always worth, worth saying, especially in those lines mm. as well. So the pathological tendon appears to effectively compensate for areas of disorganization by increasing in cross-sectional area to maintain sufficient volume. That's awesome. It is really cool how the tendon the part that's not degenerative will change and, and adapt. And that's what the donut theory, and sometimes you can draw that for patients who are more interested in that. So while the continuum classifies tendons based on the extent or presence of structural disorganization, targeting treatments at regenerating the area of disorganization, not really worth doing, as the tendon may have already compensated or been in the process of doing so. So that's why imaging is probably not as important because if you image someone and find that they do have degenerative tendon, it's very likely that the other part of the tendon that is healthy has probably already changed or compensated or you can work on changing that. I think I interpreted that question wrong. Oh, really? I think they were talking about the tendon. I was talking to this person on Instagram not long ago. Okay. And I won't read my answer then. <laughs> well, yeah, it may as well because okay. one of the other questions was discussion on recent advantages in tendinopathy. The way that I interpreted that question was mm. has our understanding of load-dependent tendinopathies changed since, like, since the continuum model started? So prior to the continuum model. You hit the mic again. Now. <laughs> Stop hitting the mic. <laughs> So my answer to that question was that I wasn't practicing as a physio before the continuum model, so I can't really comment on what the general rehab or management was prior to when the continuum model came out. Hmm. And the other thing that I, uh, that uh, the other point that I had was that we we touched on this with Peter Maliaris in the in the podcast, and and my answer was more so. Do we change our management as to if it's a reactive versus a degenerative mm. tendinopathy? And as Peter uh, answered that question through the podcast, he, he said that the management doesn't necessarily change. We, we sort of find what the patient's baseline or tolerance level is and then load them as much as we can for whatever irritability level they're mm. at. So I'm not sure if I answered that question right. Or oh, that's fine. I mean information any information is good about tendons mm. they did talk about in that new paper a, like a hybrid so they talked about reactive and gener degenerative pathology and we're actually having Emmy reactive Rayo. on degenerative yeah so they talk about that like this hybrid model but we're having ebony rio on the podcast next month anyway so she'll be able to answer some of those questions i would say i've got a little bit of confidence probably better than us i've seen her present yeah. she's I'm so very excited. Good. Yeah, she's cool. Very, very excited. She's cool. You know, it's just incredible that we get to talk to these people. I mean, mm. I know maybe I express my excitement different to you, express my emotions. And I've had, this has been told to me in the past by many people that I do express emotion. With your eyes. With my eyes, definitely. <laughs> with my hand gestures. But I just could not believe Wednesday night... When I was going to bed, just sitting there thinking, I can't, we get to, for an hour, talk to Dr. Peter Maliaris. A year ago, more than a year ago, sorry, there is no way in the world, even a year ago, that I ever thought that that would happen. 
Like, it's just incredible. The knowledge, mm. like, so we jumped on uh, the Flexing Physio Dan Chang's podcast, talking about bone stress injuries. I was just pulling stuff out of my brain, not from the sense of, obviously, from some things that we've read, but I don't know if you were doing the same, but I was pulling it from things that I read from Dr. Richard Williams, Stuart Water, and the podcast. I mean, it's incredible. Mm. They are, the people, it just makes me think that clinicians and people in healthcare are such nice people. They donate their time, their knowledge to help people. And then, and then we watch YouTube videos of Dr. Gregory Johnson. I'll <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to post him on. Oh, Dr. Gregory Johnson's a chiropractor in the Look US. <laughs> he just, he is the, he is the antithesis I'm, of a good practitioner. I am. I'm preventing you from getting onto the operating table. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, you definitely got sacroiliac dysfunction, and he's just touching someone's shirt through their back. It's ridiculous. Yeah, we'll post him on one day. <laughs> All right, let's get on to the next question. Come from Sambo up in Tamworth. He wanted to know why do tendons love isometrics so much? Is there any research behind this? Now, let me preframe this. Great question. I always thought that isometrics were great for pain. And then I saw a post from Mick Hughes saying that, or maybe it was Greg Lehman, or maybe it was both of them, saying that the research isn't clear if isometrics mm. are good for pain. So what I, what I found was there was a recent systematic review that looked at 10 randomized control trials, and it showed that isometric exercise does not appear to be superior to isotonic exercise in the management of chronic tendinopathy. Mm. So I had a look at the, the studies that were included and throughout the studies they were comparing isometrics to various different I- interventions. So isotonic exercises, they were, some of them was comparing them to, to ice, some of them was comparing them to um, oh, what else? I lost it. That was a really weird sound you did after that. Um, sound <laughs> like a crocodile or a duck. Cortic, cord, wait, where am I? Oh, yeah. Um, Cortical bone stimulation. No, I lost it. I can't find uh, it. I knew. This is why I said get prep for the studies. you got to have it on you. Um, <sighs> but our poor listeners. They were probably sitting there going, hanging off every word wait. you were saying. Can we just edit that? It doesn't matter. All the listeners are probably gone. Oh, now. found it, found it, found it. Found we said we're not going to edit the podcast. Authenticity. Found it, found it, found it. Most of them are comparing them to isotonic exercises, actually. So yeah. isometrics versus isotonic exercises, some to ice therapy, mm. some to ice therapy and isotonic and isometric exercises, some to eccentric, concentric exercises. And Can you just explain? I know most people will know, but just the difference between isotonic and isometric and what we're talking about. Yep. So isometric exercises are a sustained hold. Yeah. So you're, for example, doing a, a wall sit yeah. for the a patella joint, tendon. The joint doesn't change in range of motion. Yep. Yeah. Isotonic is moving through range with a consistent mm. load or tempo. Do you think that... Because I, I regularly give, especially in Achilles tendinopathy when they're irritable... I find a place through the calf range where they're not irritable and I would just tell them to hold. And we know... Interesting. I find a place where it is irritable and tell them to hold. Yeah. Okay. So then there... Yeah. So that Mm. that found that it was no different and it was variable across tendinopathy populations. It 
can be, and, and this is sort of what I've always thought, is it it's, can be used as part of a progressive loading program. So we take that person and, and where they're at, and mm. if they can't tolerate a single leg calf raise because it's too painful, then mm. an isometric is a starting point. Mm. And then you'd always progress on from that. So it's not, mm. it's not the only, like the end of the road, it's the start of the road in mm. some cases. However, there's another uh, RCT, from Ebony Rio, and it's looking at isometric exercises in patellar tendinopathy. Mm. And in this study, they have shown that isometric exercises reduce tendon pain immediately for at least 45 minutes post-intervention. The, they've shown that the reduction in pain was paralleled by a reduction in cortical inhibition, mm. providing insight into the potential mechanisms of what is a driver of pain in tendinopathy, which I'm really keen to ask Ebony Rio about when she comes onto the podcast. So that other study that I was talking about, the systematic review, that one was looking at pain and function. Yeah. This one is more specifically looking at pain. pain. Well, and actually, I've, like clinically, I do find that isometrics are useful for the management of pain. Yeah, I just use it as, as a bridge. Yeah, and so do I. Even just, to, just for something, like I... I and I think that most practitioners are similar. I just get them to do whatever they can do movement-wise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would think... I don't know if this has been done, and I'm saying this purely off what I think. This isn't based in the evidence at all. But I would think that if someone had plenty heel pain and you got them to do some lunges or some squats, they would probably feel better, even though you haven't done anything specific for that heel or that for just general movement. Yeah, just moving it. Yeah, moving... In whatever way it feels okay to Just them. moving any part of the body. Yeah, even just going for a swim, swimming, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that movement... Because we know that... We do know that. We don't know how, but we know movement or, I guess, resisted movement is good for pain. Would we say that? We know that. Yeah. Resistance training is good for pain, just purely for pain. Yes. But we just is. don't know the mechanism in which that happens. Yes. And it would definitely be, and I'm trying to think of the word, but it would definitely be on a local level, but also a systemic level. So I posted about a couple of studies this week in chronic tendinopathies, the effect on the nervous system and how that can also contribute to some of the underlying mechanisms. Mm. That, and that may be pain function mm. or cool. possibly even structure. Yeah, it is cool. I just think you can't... When we always talk about it, you can't separate pain, structure, and function. I mean, you kind of can, but they're all... Sorry. You can't separate local and systemic pathology or the drivers within that within that pathology. So if someone has chronic heel pain or chronic Achilles pain or chronic rotator cuff pain, you just can't separate what is happening happening locally and what is happening systemically. I mean, you can get a bit of an idea, but you just can't seem to do it, can you? Mm. Mm. I guess if you're talking about tissue healing, mm. we can be pretty confident on tissue healing timeframes. Like we've got... But what, is, but what is healing? Like is, is a degenerative tendon not healed? Even though it's at full function and no pain? I was kind of thinking more in like the line of acute injuries. As an example? I guess ankle like ankle sprain. Well, what's healed in an ankle sprain? Like when do you say, yep, that's healed? 
Like what's the what is it? Is it the structure? Is it great? You're healed when you can do a hundred single leg hops. But no, I'm meaning more the tissue. We'll say for, for structure then. So yeah. what what does healed mean? Is it when seventy five percent of the fibers are realigned, or when the scar tissues form? Like what does healed healed mean? Because people That's a great question. Like people can function with longitudinal splits in their perineals. Is does that mean that everyone with osteoarthritis in their knee, your knee isn't healed, even though you've got arthritic structural change, but you're still functioning? That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a good point. I was talking yeah, to. Yeah, thanks for that. Thank you. That's, that's right, a good buddy. point. <laughs> I was talking to a physio about prognosis, with in regards to when we're talking to patients about what they can expect from their rehab journey, mm-hmm. and we often talk about. The relationship of function and pain so you know we often talk about your your functional capacity should increase as we go through the rehab process mm. your pain will tend to be a bit up and down and somewhere down the track you'll cross a blurry mm. line where your pain goes down and your mm. function goes up but we never really talk about tissue like the tissue healing mm, yes and that's yeah that's been shown to be something that patients really care about is they want to know if if the tissue is okay. So maybe in those diagrams that we're drawing or or talking about, we should be explaining that where for an acute injury anyways, we can be pretty confident that that tissue is going to heal within, Mm. you know, at least three months Mm. for an acute injury. But, you know, for an ankle sprain, probably around the, the six to eight week mark, at the most for a, a moderate one mm-hmm. and just giving them that reassurance that that it is going to be okay mm-hmm. because with the biopsychosocial model we're so focused on pain and function that we don't really explain the biomedical side of things as well as patients maybe want to yeah, understand it yeah and the research is clear that patients care most about the biomedical yeah which is structure the biological factors tissue but yeah. And I, I, I don't want to discount the biomedical stuff, which we, as everything, the pendulum swings, and I'm guilty of that for sure. Like to say that, no, don't care about the structure of the tissue. That's not important. That is not the case at all. It's saying that we should incorporate that in conjunction with the other contextual factors. But I don't know how much we can say, because if you say that to, to somebody, do they that, not to say they'll get focused on structure, but you could almost say that, not saying that structure doesn't matter, but you could say it's not probably the focus for what we need to rely on because it's a poor metric of how well or how likely you are to get back to 100%. Although they are, they are related, but probably not as much as what you think. Mm. I think in some cases mm. it would be worthwhile more. touching on it just from a reassurance point oh, of yeah, view. So yeah. people that are worried that they have back pain because their disc hasn't healed. Mm. We can say, look, we know that majority of discs will heal within a three-month period. Mm. This then, will get better mm, yeah. from a tissue point of view. Then including your pain and your function and how that will interact mm. at the same time. What Another thing that got me thinking this week is when we say those things to patients' care, we say, hey, the research says this or we know this. And that's probably from speaking with Dave. Do they mm. really care about that? It's worth mentioning, and I always I wouldn't mention say, it. Yeah, and this is what we talked about last week in terms of that patient that I was telling you about yeah, where yeah. I started pulling research out. Yeah. She didn't give a 
crap about that. Well, I guess which it would be showing them that. So let's say two weeks ago, and this could be a good example. And I've I've done this in the past with an Achilles, where two weeks ago they had a six out of ten. Now they've got a two out of ten pain. You can say that over those two weeks, it's very likely that your tissue hasn't changed very much structurally, although your pain's gone down significantly, and you're doing a lot more. So. That's what I'm probably saying when I mean structure and function, or sorry, structure, how much important we need to have, sorry, how much weight we need to have on structure. Do you I think, think that's the other reason, no, well, one? I don't know, with you saying that, the other, the other reason that I don't touch on it is because how do you know? Like without imaging yeah. and things, how do you know that I don't know. I'm touching it is or it isn't healing? Well, I know, and I'm just reflecting out loud. I think that's why I don't do it, is because mm-hmm. I just don't have enough confidence to know exactly what the structure's doing, so... Why mm. Why even bother? Yeah. Well, you bother because people care about it. If we know from the research they care about it. Mm. But then if we know that they care about it, how do you then explain that it does matter, but it doesn't matter? Mm. If they know that it does matter. And this is a complexity of healthcare. That's, and that's Bloody pretty, hell. Yeah. Well, let's finish it there. If anyone <laughs> knows the answer to that, please shoot it through. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in that. It's yeah. a tricky, com- tricky concept. Concept, idea, notion. I don't know. Barack Obama would know, but he'd know, the he'd know everything. <laughs> anyway, guys, enjoy. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Peter Maliaris. Dr. Peter Maliaris. Guru. Welcome back, sports medicine fans, to another episode of the Sports Medicine Project. Now, our special guest today is Dr. Peter Maliaris. Now, in our eyes, definitely the the tending guru, over 120 publications and someone we have both followed and listened to for some time. I know Kelly's done one of his courses and I I still remember as a student years ago reading your review, um, Achilles and Patella Tendinopathy Loading Programs in the Sports Medicine Journal. And yeah, it's a funny kind of reflection point now getting to, to think about myself reading that and now getting to talk to you about, about tendons is, um, is awesome. And that was back when I thought tendons actually needed to be stretched because they were tight. I was a very naive young student, but hopefully we can confirm that that's not true today. Now, I'll give a small introduction for the listeners, but you've been active in tendon research for 15 years, completed your PhD in tendinopathy in, in 2006, and you've been pretty busy by the sounds of it. But yeah, welcome, Maiden, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, uh, Blake and Kelly. Nice to be here. Lovely. And so for, for the listeners, what's your your story and what keeps you busy at the moment? I'm definitely sure it's a lot more than, than what I've put in my very, very short summary. Thank you, Blake. So basically, um, I have been a physio for about 25 years and I sort of um, uh, worked for a bit, then then got into a PhD and and that was probably a bit over 20 years ago now when I started. Uh, So I've sort of been in the sort of tendinopathy research in some format for about 20 years and uh, PhD came first, and then since then I've been sort of mixing practice with um, research at various places. I did a bit of a stint in the UK, uh, and then since then I've been working here in Melbourne, back in Melbourne, uh, for the last probably, I think, 11 or 12 years. Um, and I sort of combine at the moment, there's uh, Monash University four days a week where I've got, we've got a group of uh, people interested in tendon research, and a lot of them are PhD students, but also some postdoc researchers. 
And um, we do studies ranging from lab studies where we look at things like um, trying to understand pain and some of the impairments intended on. Mm. And then we also go right through to the spectrum of looking at more translational studies like testing treatments and trials uh, in, in randomised trials. So we do sort of a spectrum of, of research um, and that sort of is four days a week that I'm in the clinic one day a week uh, where I'm sort of seeing mainly tendinopathy patients in the lower limb. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's sort, of, that's sort of the mix at the moment. Yeah, wow, that's that's awesome. You had a, a pretty long history dealing with tendons and good to hear you You see lower limb tendons. Sorry, lower limb tendons, they're the best ones. I always joke with Kelly, they're the harder ones to treat. That's why podiatrists are better than physios, but we'll that for <laughs> another topic. I, I, I did want to ask and, and get kind of straight into it for the people, and we we're saying off air that we've got quite a lot of clinicians that listen to this and, and athletes and, and runners as well. How would, would you explain the kind of functionality and, and basic physiology of a tendon? Well, a tendon in its basic form is just a rope that attaches the muscle to the bone. Um, and then you've got some tendons that are a bit more specialised that we call energy storage tendons. Uh, and that probably the best example of an energy storage tendon is the Achilles tendon. And what the what tendons like the Achilles do is they store energy, um, as the name sort of suggests. So they basically act as springs, and that mechanism is really important uh, physiologically for runners as well as anyone that's doing any load-bearing activity like walking uh, because what, what it will enable is it will allow the muscle fascicles to work in a very efficient range. So if you think about human movement um, and you think about the thing that costs the most energy when we're moving, it's definitely the movement of the fascicles. So how much the fascicles stretch, but also how fast they stretch. So that's really costly in terms of our human movement. So we can't do many fast and large contractions back to back because we get fatigued. So what the fascicles, uh, what the tendon allows is uh, for the tendon to do a lot of the straining um, and stretching when we're doing things like walking and running, and therefore the calf muscle, uh, the fascicles within the calf muscle don't have to strain as much, and that means that we're much more efficient. So some of the estimates suggest that up to 30% of the energy for walking is passive based on Achilles tendon uh, energy storage being released. So it's really, really important, especially as we get older. Um, so I, I see people mainly with Achilles, but you know, as a, as I mentioned, uh, throughout the throughout the lower limb. And um, as we get older, we sort of walking is one of the key activities that we do. And um, uh, you sort of um, you need that mechanism to be working well, but also for runners, it, it, it's really important uh, to function. Yeah, that's great. Do you you mentioned that you work um, in a in a lab as well? Do you do some of your studies on on animals as well, Peter? We don't actually do animal studies at the at the moment um, in the lab that I'm in here at Monash. Uh, we there was when I was at Queen Mary University. There's some people there that were doing really really great animal research in tendinopathy, so people like Hazel Screen. I never got to work with her, unfortunately, directly uh, in terms of some of the studies that she was doing, but she's done some really interesting work more recently looking at um, the inter-fascicular matrix 
which is a part of the mm-hmm. tendon that um, she's discovering enables the tendons that are energy storage to strain a lot and take a lot of energy. So she's sort of discovering some of that. But yeah, here at Monash, mainly human, um, yeah, mainly human research. We have en- enough trouble with humans, so I wouldn't want to get into <laughs> yeah. the animal. I know. That, well, that's why I was asking. I was gonna. I was going to um, ask if there's if if uh, much of the research is done on animals and generalised to humans or vice versa or where where we know this information from. But by the sounds of it, it's probably a bit of a mix. Bit of a mix, but uh, we know that whenever you're looking at uh, non-in vivo, so you'd go away from humans and you go to animals or you go to cell models or other models or even modelling work that is really popular now and common, uh, it's there's always limitations because you always have to make assumptions and that is that you can actually transfer what you're finding out uh, in these other models and animals to what we see in humans as well. So it, it is an advantage to do human research, but sometimes, you know, there's certain things you can't test on humans. Um, you know, for example, some of the studies they do where they, you know, euthanize animals after they've finished certain loading protocols. You you can't do that on humans. Uh, so there's there are, there are limitations to human research, but generally it it, it translates better um to, to humans and the people we treat in clinic. Mm. Would, would yeah. you say, and we're talking off, off air before uh, about a patient that I just had with an insertion in Achilles and, and we were discussing kind of, and they were saying, you know, I wish I could have done something to prevent it from happening because it's obviously a long journey and it can impact on what they can do. And this person was was a runner. Would you say there's, there's any indication for screening people without pain and like using particular me- measures any of that kind of correlates to an increased risk of injury. Like as an example, I know, I don't know if it's research or it's more just what I've heard, like being able to do 20 good quality single leg calf raises to reduce the risk of developing Achilles tendinopathy, which makes logical sense, but it might not always translate out like that. Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. The the um, evidence for risk factors is really quite thin on the ground. There's not much evidence for risk factors. So to be a risk factor, it sort of needs to be uh, tested in a prospective study, which means that you need to have um, tested the risk factor and then follow a whole bunch of people that haven't got the problem and they, some develop it and you see if that risk factor is more common in the people that actually develop the problem. And they're quite hard studies to do because you need to follow big groups of people for a long time. So they haven't. there's not many of those studies, unfortunately. We don't have a lot of evidence. Having said that, there are, there is some um, and if you th- take the example of Achilles tendon, there's um, a whole bunch of uh, prospective risk factors that have been identified. Um, um, and they're sort of, some of them are quite um, surprising, I guess you could say. So I think there was a study, I think it was published two years ago or three years ago by the Dutch group um, where Robert Jan de Vos works. And they had... Um, yeah, they had pulled the data on these risk factors, and I'm pretty sure there was some that were interesting, like, for example, um, you know, training in colder weather was one mm. of them from memory. Yeah. Um, you know, things like that that you... Um, think of. Yeah, wouldn't necessarily... We sort of tend to think of load as a key factor, um, and it probably is, but that didn't come out in the, in the analysis, and I think it's because... 
probably change in loading is really important, but no one measures that because it's hard to measure. Yeah. People just measure whatever volumes of load, and obviously it's quite individual, uh, the volumes of load we can sustain at any one time. So, and, and obviously it's it's also confounded by changes in loading patterns when people develop a problem. Mm. So uh, you don't have that in the prospective studies as much, but uh, so load is a hard one uh, to test, but um, looking at some of the other ones, so for example, fluoroquinolone antibiotics, that's a risk factor, mm. uh, moderate alcohol use, training in cold weather. I've actually looked up the paper, so I'm reeling them off now. Yeah. <laughs> Decreased isokinetic plantar flexor strength, and that that's not a surprising one. Um, so if you've got decreased strength of your plantar flexors and you change your loading suddenly, you're going to expose your tendon to potentially high loads when it's really not up, up for it. So that's that's one that is sort of um, one that we can address yeah. uh, with the interventions that we use. But, yeah, there's not a whole stack. There's about five or six known risk factors for Achilles, similar to other tendinopathies in the lower limb. Yeah. Uh, most of the evidence we have is for what we call cross-sectional studies um, and cross-sectional factors. And these, the problem with the cross-sectional studies is that you never know whether uh, an impairment has developed after the onset of pain. Mm. So, you, yeah, there's a whole stack of those. You can't really trust them. When you when you say uh, isokinetic strength for the of the plantar flexors, what's the what would, what's the figures that are coming out for that, or, or what do we consider to be normal? Um, it is a bit variable depending on the protocol. So, for example, if you do it in an e-bent position versus a sort of um, semi-knee bend, so 40, 45 degrees, a bend versus a straight knee, it will vary. Mm-hmm. Um, it will also vary depending on if the trunk is extended or you're sitting up. Um, so the protocols vary a lot because it just depends on how much force someone can produce. Um but uh, as a ballpark, I'm pretty sure that in this Matthew paper that showed that it was around about, um, the talk was around about, and it also depends on how fast they're moving. So it, um, it, it depends on how fast because with an isokinetic dynamometer, you can move at sort of 90 degrees per second or sometimes much faster than that as well, up to 240 yeah. Um, it depends on speed. Um, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't want to guess off the top of my head, but it was, yeah, it was, it was um, a fair different side to side. And I guess one of the ways that we look at it is how big is the proportion of difference side to side. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's more mm-hmm. than 10%, then it's starting to, you know, think about more substantial difference. But we've actually got some data to answer that question with a different test. Um, one of my PhD students, Igor Sancho has just um, actually finished and and actually been awarded his PhD. He one of his studies was looking at um, strength measures all throughout the lower limb in people with Achilles tendinopathy, but we just compared them to people that didn't have Achilles tendinopathy and also to the unaffected side because uh, they all had unilateral. And what we found is that um, uh, the the one that was impaired the most was seated calf raise 6RM. Right. Yes. Yeah, I think I might have seen that. Has that been published? It, it has, yeah. It was published uh, just late last year. I think I saw that on your Twitter. Did you share that on your Twitter? I think I'm going to screenshot that on my yeah. phone. Yeah. I did. I shared it on Twitter. I also wrote a Talking Tendons podcast about it. But, mm. um, 
uh, yeah, we, we we sort of found that if you've got impairments, most people can push 1.5 times their body weight. Um, so if you weigh, uh, say, 70 kilos, you should be able to push 105 kilos for six repetitions of a seated calf raise in a Smith machine. Um, what we found is that the people who had Achilles tendon pain and they were all runners, so they were still able to run, um, they were able to push more like 1.1 times their body weight. Uh, and that was by far the biggest impairment that we found. We looked at glute strength, knee strength. We looked at um, also standing calf raise. Yeah. So so that was uh, that was interesting. So so we do know that it's impaired, but again, if we look prospectively, we're not sure if that develops after, and it probably does for some people, mm. rather than sort of preceding the um, the tendon pain. Yeah, interesting. God, I'm in a bit of trouble. I weigh 100 kilos. I don't know if I can do 150 kilos. <laughs> race. I might break my knees, but we'll see. <laughs> well, most most people, because I test it routinely in the clinic, most people struggle even, you know, even on their good side. So a lot of people are not at the level that, you know, healthy runners probably should be at. Um, yeah. One of the problems is we don't have lot of normative data for a, mm. a lot of these tests that we do so it was good that eagle was able to um really get some data for at least that one yeah that's great I, is that I, is that typically from like planner grade as well or is that looking at dropping down off a step into a bit more of that um dorsiflexion yeah dropping down right right down into dorsiflexion so we didn't actually do it over a step but with um the city car phrase what we get people to do is just shift their heel back um, when they're in that sort of down position and that and that allows them to get a lot of dorsiflexion so if they slide their heel back yeah. rather than having the tibia vertical the tibia is angled backwards and that sort of gets them into near in range dorsiflexion mm. on on that topic of and talking about kind of heavy calf running and i know uh, Greg, Greg Lehman and, and Dave Renfrew, some pr uh, previous guests on the podcast, has been talking about you know what what tendons need to get better when they're painful and kind of the general assumption is they need you know heavy resistance. But there, there has been a study, and correct me if I'm wrong, to show that they can get better with medium and, and high load, and there wasn't that much of a difference. So do we we understand that tendons need mechanical force, I think, that to get better. But does it need to be heavy? Does it need to be challenged? Or it just needs to apply mechanical force and we get that adaption? Yeah, it's a, that's, that's a really, really, really good question because it's a, it's a complicated one. Mm. Uh, if you look at healthy tendon and how it adapts, the, the most important mechanism that we know about at the moment for healthy tendon adaptation is straining the tendon. So the more force you put on a tendon, the more it's going to strain and therefore the more it will adapt. Mm. So if you're thinking about the outcome of healthy tendon adaptation, it definitely is important to strain a tendon with high force. So high intensity is better. Um, now, when you're thinking about a clinical context, that's different because someone because now we're dealing with someone who has pain um, and a tendon that needs loading as well and adaptation, but they've also got pain. And what the what the literature shows really clearly is that in terms of improving pain outcomes and, and a lot of self-reported outcomes, even self-reported function disability, um, it doesn't actually matter if we do heavier load. So if we load them more intensely or we do lighter load, those outcomes will still improve. 
and um, they improve it at the same in the same way. So we've done a few studies. One of my uh, former PhD students, uh, Fatma Asani, she did a study where she looked at four different loading protocols for the Achilles, and it was just a pilot and feasibility study. Uh, but she was able to show that if you look at the effect sizes for high load and low load interventions, they were pretty similar. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't much in it. Um, another student, uh, PSC student, who's um, close to completing at the moment, Josh Norton, he's done a similar study looking at shoulders and he's also found the same thing. So it seems really clearly that it doesn't need to be heavy to improve pain. Uh, but we do think that heavier loading will probably improve um, ability to perform certain functional tasks that require higher loads and it will probably also improve tendon adaptation. Uh, But the catch to all that is that if you look at studies and there are only a handful that look at tendon adaptation for pathological tendinopathic tendon, you don't tend to get the same adaptive response with a stimulus that would adapt a normal tendon, healthy tendon. So... God, that makes it so complex. More, it, it does. It does. Yeah, it sort of makes your brain hurt a bit because you sort of think you're doing all the same things, but the tendon doesn't actually adapt. Maybe we need to do longer duration mm. interventions. Maybe instead of twelve weeks, uh, like healthy tendon, we need to do it for you know twenty six weeks or a year. Uh, maybe we need different interventions for healthy for pathological tendon. We just don't know yet, but. Um, or maybe the outcome measures that we're using are not good enough. So we generally, the main outcome for tendon adaptation is is the amount of stiffness of a tendon. So it's the amount of stretch for a given force. And that outcome might not be sensitive enough to show different adaptations that are going on in the tendon, Mm. not on that sort of global stiffness outcome that we're using. So it's a complex area, but generally as a clinical rule of thumb, um, to be able to provide some clinical guidance to people. And what I tend to do in clinic is I will I will sort of adhere to the principle of you do want to do some loading that is higher intensity. Um, at least one or two exercises of getting up to higher intensity is probably a good principle from a point of view of adaptation of the muscle and tendon. It's, it's probably the way to go, even though you don't necessarily need to do that if you are just focused on pain as an outcome. And is that when you say higher intensity, is that uh, the like the the rate of loading, or in regards to strength, or both? High intensity would be sort of um, uh, greater than seventy percent mm. of MVC if you're doing yeah. isometric, or greater than seventy percent of one RM. So you're looking at fatiguing them, you know, by about ten reps or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Wow. And then it's, yeah, that's funny. Just when you think you know. A little bit, you don't really. <laughs> I mean, we, we we kind of touched on this throughout that, Peter. But why why don't we rest tendons? I know previously we we used to think rest was the answer, and now we know that loading is is probably more likely the answer. Do you do you think that there's any possibility it could go full circle and we could end up wanting or thinking that we need to rest tendons again? Or do you think there's enough evidence to support? loading for improving tendon adaptation yeah look that's that's a really that's a really good question interesting area um it's yeah so if you go back to the 70s we we would say to people you've got to rest because it's inflamed and it will settle down 
Uh, and um, at that time, they were also cutting out bits of pathology in the tendon because they thought it was as simple as if you just take out the pathology, the tendon will, will feel better. So we had a very simplistic view that was based around pathology equals pain. Um, you know, the, the, the pathophysiology is inflammation, you just got to rest it, which we know is not right now. But um, I think uh, we have got now into a period where we want to be active in our interventions. And the main reason for that is uh, we know that um, if you're not active and you stop um uh, you stop being active, your pain can actually get worse rather than better. So you go into a cycle where you become deconditioned, tendon becomes weaker. Um, you also, and a lot of these people also have psychological um, uh, sort of associated factors like, you know, poor self-efficacy and a high fear avoidance. So that type of, that type of patient um, it should be encouraged and reassured to be active regardless of a little bit of pain. And that they'll probably do better if that's the case. But we, but there is, as you've alluded to, a limit to the sort of mantra of we should be active regardless of what's going on. We do need to be careful. Sometimes um, I think with the situation where you've got someone who's really, really irritated and flared up and uh, they do need rest, you know, in inverted commas, um, and rest might be just reducing loads um, really substantially for a certain period of time. Um, so that that still is important for some people, depending on how much pain they have with the day-to-day -day things they're doing. Um, and then you've got other people who, um, you know, really are sort of, you might be doing exercise and rehab with them and they're just, you know, flaring up or um, uh, having a response, a pain response that is, beyond what would be acceptable and that, you know, the, the, the thing that we tend to call acceptable is um, an increase in pain for a short amount of time after loading or some activity is okay. Uh, and those people, again, you might need to adjust. So it's sort of a constant process of trying to, the way that I sort of try and explain it to patients is you've got, uh, you've got the ability of the tendon to take load and that could be day-to-day -day walking, plus running, uh, plus the exercise we're, we're doing. And then you've got um, the amounts of that loading you're doing. And you've just got to find the balance between those two. And sometimes it involves rest completely. Sometimes it involves a trade-off. Sometimes it involves no rest and continuing or even increasing the amount of loading they're doing, <laughs> depending on how they present. So if they present with a lot of pain, um, you're probably going to reduce loading if they present with not much pain, some people present with not much pain, uh, but not much activity either because they're fearful. And then it's reassurance and trying to get them active. So it really does depend on uh, where this where their starting point is. How how do you explain? And you've you've definitely answered it there. Like when people talk about you know tendons becoming irritable, and, and we're very much I know, I know Kelly and I are very similar in the clinic you know, trying to de-threaten the pain and saying it's probably not the best measure of the tissue health when the tendon's been painful for a long time. And I'm imagining, you know, an Achilles tendinopathy that's been sore for two years as we start to do more. Yes, it can be sore, but it's probably more related to the sensitivity than, than real pathology in the tendon. Do you find that's, that's the case? Or how do you explain that to patients when they are a little bit fearful and they're worried that they're doing kind of more, more damage and it's okay to have a little bit of pain with the rehab? 
Yeah. Look, I think just simple messages like um, um, making sure that they're clear that it's not, so pain is not a sign of damage or further injury. It's okay to feel a little bit of pain. And then that might be enough for some people. So just the reassurance that it's okay to feel pain with certain activities, you're not going to rupture it, it's not going to get worse in terms of the pathology that's there, that could be enough for some. Mm -hmm. Other people, you might go down more of a pain neuroscience uh, explanation where you sort of then explain further about, you know, it's, it is okay to load a bit because we know the pain is not related to structural tearing or damage. The pain is probably related to a biochemical response in the tendon, um, which is separate to what's going on from a you know tissue point of view. Um, it's more of a cell response, but also it, it, it's influenced by so many other factors in their day-to-day -day life, like how much they sleep and how attentive they are to the pain and fear and all these other factors that we know about in the biopsychosocial model. So, yeah. uh, so then just you might go, yeah, more towards a pain neuroscience explanation for some people. Um, if if they sort of are thinking, if you're thinking this person wants a bit more or they'll benefit from that level of um, explanation. So it can be quite individual, but I find most people are pretty reassured when you say to them, look, it's completely fine to have a little bit of pain, you're not damaging it. Um, it's sort of an intuitive thing, I guess, for most people where they find that that level of detail is enough. You don't need to go necessarily to pain neuroscience education. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I just had one, one question. Um, you mentioned the biochemical response within the tendons. Could you please, could you elaborate on that? That's probably just me being <laughs> Surely that'd take like five hours, I'm what... sure. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's quite simple because my understanding of it is quite simple. Um, I can I can tell you it's, I'm not a cell level researcher, but hmm. there's a lot of stuff that's been looked at in terms of the cell response. And generally when you, and there's a really good paper written by Neil Miller and his group in um, Europe, uh, the UK, um, about um, about the sort of pathophysiology understanding at the moment. It was in Nature Reviews. But basically, the, under, the, the thinking at the moment is that you've got a whole host of cell changes. So you've got all these uh, cytokines um, that uh, change in terms of their levels within a tendon, and they're basically driven by probably excretion and from the cell, but also some of the local nerves that are in, in the tendon. Um, so things like substance P, um, calcitonin, germ-related peptide, but also, you know, growth factors like vascular endothelial growth factor, and they cause changes in immune uh, system level, uh, but also neural function within the tendon, and they, they may then contribute to some of the pathology and pain changes. So the thinking is that you've got a whole host of really complicated um, uh, sort of cell and neural and immune changes that uh, happen within the tendon. And that sort of sets up that environment of pain and um, and sort of, you know, change in the tissue itself. Hmm. And is there something in that that leads us to understand why pain is typically after loading? Um, there are a few there are a few theories about that. 
there are a few theories about that, and it could be that you have um, a delayed response from the tenocytes within the tendon, and they then start to um, they then start to signal, and you start to get changes in pain. Um, so there are a few theories, but I don't think we have anything definitive about what what's going yeah. on with that pain mm-hmm. behavior. Ellie, you're asking some tough questions. That was a good question. <laughs> I feel bad now. I've just got a pretty simple, simple question, but something that, that we talk about a lot and learn about, especially in the in the podiatry profession, is, is kind of a big no, you never do it. You never inject a tendon. But asking it yourself, have you seen and, and when you've managed them over the years, like do you think there's any indication for or sorry, any indication for injectables and whether that be PRP or, or cortisone or prolotherapy for tendons at, at any stage and thinking end of the spectrum of someone that's they're irritable, they're really struggling to move and, and really can't do much at all. Is there ever a stage where, where that might be an indication? Yeah, look, um, I sort of have to answer yes to that because I'm doing mm-hmm. a currently leading a trial um, funded by NHMRC investigating an injection for Achilles tendinopathy, and that's the high-volume injection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think injections generally, if you look at the overall, there's there's probably three uh, main ones. There's steroid injection, there's uh, PRP, mm-hmm. and there's also the high volume injection, which mm-hmm. is high volume of fluid with some with it with some steroid and local anaesthetic. Um, the and and none of them have got. I think it's fair to say a strong evidence base supporting them. So I think that's why people have. I guess gone away from injections or not really support, not really, um, not really been keen to go there unless it's a real last resort. Having said that, uh, they are really commonly used, and if it, if you've got someone who's failed lots of interventions, they're very very commonly recommended at that point. Uh, my personal view on things like steroid um, or PRP or even high volume is that. For the right person at the right time, um, they're probably all possible as mm. something you'd recommend. So I my my practice would be to try and inform the patient about the risks and the benefits for each one. Mm. So we know that with steroid, you there is strong evidence for short term benefit, but there are question marks over long longer term harm. So in the longer term, you might actually get a recurrence of your pain. Uh, with PRP, we know the strong evidence that it doesn't work completely placebo. Uh, but even when you tell that to some patients and they've tried everything, because anecdotally some people get a response, they might have had a yeah. friend or someone they know has got a response, they might be still keen to try it. Um, and then you've got the high-volume injection, which is um, still developing in terms of its evidence. So there's not really any good trial evidence where as i said we're doing a trial at the moment we've recruited 192 people with achilles and we'll publish the findings of that over the next 12 months um we, we don't know the findings yet we haven't looked at the data uh we're still waiting for 12 month follow-ups to come in but yeah that will help us in terms of how we sort of think about injections but still we we don't have a strong evidence base for injections. so i don't think they should be considered as you know never do an injection, but I also think they are overused massively in terms of mm. clinical practice all over the world. Um, and I think it's because 
patients perceive them as something that might help them and, and be easy to do rather than what we generally recommend, which is really hard to do, and that is exercise over several months. Yeah. Like, have you found, and I, so where I work, I work, work with a, a bunch of sports doctors and, and sports physicians and, and injectables are are a common practice and like you said at, at the right time it can can really change people's lives and i've seen people where it's completely taken away their pain now obviously that's not everybody that has an injection but seeing it, it does work in those cases i i looked for a long time to try and find any research that having cortisone to the achilles increases your risk of rupture and i, and I couldn't find anything I only heard antidotal stuff from the docs and other people have, have you heard anything about that um in terms of rupture for steroid yeah like um having a rupture after having an injection like it increases your risk significantly yeah uh yeah. so i i have seen a few people who had steroid and then ruptured um after and yeah. pretty quickly after uh so and it pro it does happen with steroid uh i think the key factor is where you put the steroid so if you put the steroid into an Achilles tendon, you massively increase the risk of rupture. If you put it around the tendon, my anecdotal experience is that 